welcome back to another episode of the Water Women podcast. My name is Jill, and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. Today, I'm joined by Francesca Trotman, who is the director and founder of Love the Oceans. Today, Francesca is going to tell us all about what Love the Oceans is and how they're working to create an MPA. I'm really excited to share this podcast because I think Love the Oceans is an awesome initiative, and I'm really excited for you guys to learn all about it. So with that, let's hear from Francesca. Hi, Francesca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have the chance to speak with you. Lovely to meet you, Jill. So you founded the Love of Oceans organization, which is such an awesome group. Can you explain a little bit about how you started the organization and what you guys do? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I founded Love the Oceans while I was at university um, and we're now in our just into our sixth year, I think. Yeah, sixth year of uh, functioning. Um, and basically, our mission is to establish a marine protected area in our region in Mozambique. We're based in Mozambique, East Coast Africa. Um, and so we are using a, a community focused conservation approach, um, which basically means it's like a bottom, bottom up approach. Um, and we do a heap of different research and community outreach. We do fisheries research, humpback whales, coral reefs, ocean trash, um, megafauna, uh, like whale sharks and manta ray IDs and things mm. like that. And then um, I am missing one, coral reefs, fisheries, ocean trash, did I say that? Yeah, ocean trash, fisheries, coral reefs, uh, humpback whales and megafauna. Yeah, those are our five areas. I always forget one. Um, and then um, we have two community outreach projects as well, because the model that we're using for a marine protected area is a community led one. So you have to have a community with the skill set to be able to s successfully and sustainably manage um, a marine protected area. Um, so we teach swimming and we teach basic marine resource management as well. That is so cool. That's such an awesome like thing to have in a community and really helpful for like citizen science. Yeah, yeah, we try and get lots of people involved. Um, we've got a, a coral project starting off this year. Um, we already do coral research, but uh, we, the methodology we're using or have used and will continue using um, is basically like a 25 meter transect and it's a basic reef health assessment. Um, but now we're looking at doing plots and looking specifically at recruitment and different species in the area and different habitats and um, pressures on the environment with Leeds University. So um, we are getting, we're training more um, of our, well, we're training more of the local community up in um, in scuba diving to be able to help that project. And Pascal, our community outreach manager, he'll be um, actually leading that project, leading the local team. Um, for that coral reef project. That's awesome. That's super exciting. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> I do like my job. <laughs> that, yeah, I can imagine. What made you want to create this? Like, what was your aim with it when you first started it? Um, well, I didn't come up with it all at once. Um, <laughs> people were always like, oh my gosh, you do so much. How, how do you do all that? Um, I didn't like, I didn't, I didn't just sit down and go, right, I'm going to do this. And then create the entire thing yeah. it's it's been like bit by bit um so uh basically I it also kind of started because um well I did marine biology at university because I really liked sharks um they were my kind of animal growing up that I was really obsessed with um and then I went to uni <laughs> and did marine biology I feel like loads of marine biologists went into marine biology because of sharks but 
Um, oh yeah, definitely like sharks or whales or dolphins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and basically, when I was uh, at the end of my second year, I went to Mozambique on holiday and saw my first um, shark killing. So like humans killing sharks for the shark fin trade. Mm. Um, so I wanted to work out like how bad that was in the area um, and what effect that might be having um, in the local ecosystem. Uh, and then from there, I basically went back to university. I did an integrated master's, so it was like four years. So I went back into my third year, um, recruited research assistants, three research assistants. And we went out there at the end of my third year and spent four months with the shark fishermen learning about like the shark fin trade in the area um and kind of what were the incentives for it and the drive behind it and all the rest of it and then when I was writing up my master's I was getting the results you would think in terms of like the sustainability of the shark fin trade i.e that it's like super unsustainable um (laughs) and uh then decided well basically I couldn't publish my paper because I didn't have enough data I couldn't get my stats significant so um I needed to collect more data and then the way that I thought I could do that was to found an organization so initially we kind of just started with like the sharks but then the more I read into like successful conservation strategies and creating long-lasting change I realized that um, we needed more of like a multi-pronged approach Uh, and so then I changed the mission from um, stopping shark finning to establishing a marine protected area because the MPA will encompass the shark ban uh, shark fin ban but also uh, protect a bunch of other habitats and animals in the area too oh that's so cool thanks <laughs> <laughs> why specifically that area though like was there something you're why that area um so it's just luck really um I would say a lot of this has been um, a bit of luck involved um <laughs> my colleagues would say you make your own luck but um <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah basically this was the area that I just came to in 2013 um, and I just happened to see the sharks being killed in this area so then decided to do um, my dissertation my master's thesis on um, this area and then just kind of like it continued that way Um, we I started like the research just in Ginjata Bay which is like the bay that we're based in but now we work in Jangamo which is like three bays basically um so we work across all three and in in the three communities although predominantly in two but we do work with a third as well that's awesome that's great so like super lucky that you found such a great area to do it in yeah exactly so how does one go about like creating an mpa like how do you what are you doing to do that so we're kind of using the um science to publish papers Um, and lobby the government for legislation change. So that's kind of like the law side of it, Um, and working with the government to develop realistic um, goals and laws. Uh, But then in a country like Mozambique, uh, there's very little money to be spent on human resources and um, basically like implementing those changes. It's all very well Mm. changing the law, but like in realistically in day-to-day life the fishermen might not even know that that law has changed um and can continue doing what is illegal fishing but actually thinking that they're being legal because yeah they just there's no there's no newspapers there's no radios in our area nothing like that so um and most people can't afford a mobile phone and regular internet so um that's just not really like a way of distributing 
a law change really, really efficiently. So part of the work that we do, and I'd say it's probably about 50% of our work is education. Um, and kind okay. of the hope is basically that um, the community through the education section, um, the we're working with kids, so like the next generation of fishermen and the um, current generation of fishermen, the active fishermen as well. And the hope is that the kids will, uh, well, all, all of the community will start fishing more sustainably because um, of the knowledge behind sustainability and what that means and conservation and what that means because education levels are really low in the area so it's not like um, people know that they're fishing unsustainably it's completely like just it people just don't know about sustainability yeah. um, so introducing those concepts and then also with the law change and then we also have a alternative livelihood section of the organization as well which is basically um trying to provide a financial incentive for people to live more sustainably um because everyone knows solving environmental problems through giving humans incentives is the is the best way to go about it Um, absolutely yeah um so uh yeah we're kind of hoping that through the education section that will mean that the in terms of like the actual practical implementation of the law change will come through the educational section whereas the science is kind of like the legislative part it's very important to educate the people that the ocean isn't just this huge abundance never-ending resource and that it does in fact like have a limit to what you can and can't take from it before it starts to come back and affect us so I'm really glad you guys are doing that work to educate people on that yeah well that's the thing if, if you don't have education around that then how are you ever meant to know that what you're fishing isn't infinite like we know that because we've had education around that but a lot of the people in our area leave school around the age of um like 13 is average age to leave school so and literacy rates are about 50 percent in our area um illiteracy rates are 75 percent in women so education levels like conservation sustainability just aren't things that have been introduced as concepts um so yeah, um, I think any conservation strategy worth its salt will have a fairly large education section attached to it. Oh yeah, for sure. Because like, if you don't have that education, there's no way to understand that. Like, I mean, like I always kind of knew that it wasn't sustainable, but you really learn that in when like you're talking about fisheries and like if they're fishing all the females, then like all the adult females, then there's going to be no one to reproduce next year. So the like populations are going to go down and that's not something that you just know intuitively yeah like, that's something you have to learn yeah definitely so what's a typical day like for you guys what are you out there doing what's what's happening there um so it varies through the season um and for me personally it varies through the year as well it's, it's quite seasonal um because we have different animals um doing different things throughout the year but um typically like in june from june to november is whale season uh, and we have so many humpback whales it's amazing um and so we spend a lot of the time although to be fair we spend a lot of time in the water anyway because of coral reef surveys um but basically uh depends as a staff member we have international scientists visiting all the time um, and students from universities and schools and stuff so some of it is people management um, so it can be just you know like getting up and making sure that um, people are doing what they're meant to be doing and know where they're where they meant to be going and all that kind of stuff 
um, but usually it'll be so um, we'll be doing two dives a day um, and all of our um, students and people that join us are based they all rotate around those activities but there's always two dives a day so someone will go on those dives and that's the coral reef data collection um, and then on the boat with them is also the whale watchers so we have the divers and the whale watchers go out together um, and they collect data on the whales then we also have a team who are monitoring fisheries on the beaches at the same time uh, and they're also doing um, whale watching from the beach as well so uh, from afar basically with binoculars and stuff because um, we are humpback whales come in pretty close so it's quite easy to see them from uh, land yeah um, and so we, we've got a team of fisheries we've got a team of divers um, we've got two fishery sites as well so it's two different fisheries teams um, then we'll have a team working at local schools so that's um, teaching an agreed syllabus uh, that has been agreed with the elders in the community and the head teachers um, and that's basically supplements the national curriculum so that's things like um, an extension on biology and geography and introducing well basically what we've talked about but on a basic level uh, 10 to 13 year olds so um, marine resource management really um, coral reefs what they are ecotourism uh, all of the different types of animals that they have on their doorstep and things like that um, yeah so we have like teams on different things the fisheries uh, researchers as well as doing the whale watching because fisheries can be quite quiet sometimes it kind of comes in waves so um uh if it's a quiet day then they'll also be doing beach cleans as well um and kind of switching out between whale watching and beach cleans um and then we have our turtles nesting from november to march so uh we have um people come out and help us with that which is basically um night patrols or early morning very very early morning uh, to check for new nests and also check for hatching events as well so it's a bit of a mix <laughs> a lot of stuff yeah there. there really is no typical day for you it's just kind of whatever's happening that day is yeah. happening. that's so cool <laughs> it's funny because people are always like oh what do you do and I'm like um a bit of everything, everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite difficult to describe honestly that's the most fun though who wants a job where you're just sitting down doing the same repetitive thing every day exactly and we all um have dinner together like every night at like 6 30 so everyone kind of comes together and exchanges stories from the day and all the rest of it um so it all does come together at the end (laughs) that's a great way to have it so you guys kind of like the people that you work with must become a lot like your own family yeah definitely we all live together in the same house as well um so the staff are in a different house to whoever's visiting at that time so we have like um university students that come out and do research with us and schools and stuff they each have their own house so like each project has its own house and the staff have their own house as well so you basically like you're sharing a room you're cooking you're like living with staff members uh, and then working with them as well so it's a super intense environment too um, which means everyone has to like also take their own downtime and um, learn how to unwind without being able to leave site and just bugger off for two days. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, that, yeah. That would you need to learn how to get along with someone even when you're having a, a day and how to just be able to live with someone. Yeah, I, most of our staff kind of like I play guitar. Uh, some of our staff go for runs. We've got paddle boards, they take paddle boards out and that's kind of like the only time that you can really spend alone is when you like go out on the ocean <laughs> on a board on your own. 
<laughs> I love that. I mean, what a there's no better way to spend some time alone, but Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so, why is this something that should be important like creating these MPAs? Why is that something that should be important worldwide? Like what's the significance of them? So, there's actually been a new study out. Um it's called the 3030 campaign that was Greenpeace, uh Callum Roberts from York Uni and Richard Page as well and basically um, the whole uh, goal is to protect 30% of the oceans by 2030 hence the name 3030 campaign Um, and we're actually working with them on this but basically um, the protection of the ocean and when we talk about MPAs there's so many different types of marine protected areas Um, there's like locally managed areas LMMAs which is um, what we're going for uh, but part of that marine protected area will also be a no-take zone, an NTZ. Um, and no-take zones can be really crucial because that is a zone which no fishing can go on at all. Um, you have MPAs like our locally managed marine area, our LMMA, will be uh, will still allow fishing, but it will be um, certain types of fishing and like catch limits and all of that kind of stuff implemented. So a bit more controlled, basically, than um, the free-for-all that it currently is. Um, and the protection of that those kind of areas, especially specific areas. So we also work with, like, Mission Blue, which um, is Sylvia Earle's uh, organisation. Basically, they establish hope spots around the world, which is areas of significant marine value, essentially. Um, and our area is just about to be launched as well. And basically, protection of those areas is really important because they could have a species that's endangered in there. They could be an important migration route for a species. They could be a nursery ground for a, for a specific species. Um, for us, we've got humpback whales migrating through. We have migratory shark species. We have whale sharks, which are endangered. We have mantras, which is vulnerable. Um, so the protection of this area, we also have some seagrass patches as well is so important. Um, We also think we're in a potential nursery ground for um, scalloped hammerheads too. Um, So protections of these kind of areas are really important. Um, In terms of the benefits for humans, uh, it's important because they form kind of like a safe ground for fish. Um, So that means that those fish can um, reproduce and not be fished and uh, grow larger uh, and that will supply kind of keep stocks uh, in supply for fisheries so marine protected areas are really important in terms of um, that as well um, yeah there's like basically quite a few reasons why MPAs are so important it can be species specific it can be area specific as well um, so for us there's we've got Basaritu Archipelago which is further up north from us and we've got Ponta de Ora partial marine reserve which is further south from us so what we're doing is basically like um forming uh, that middle ground that kind of so we have a corridor of protected areas going up the Mozambique coastline um and then there's some MPAs that are being created well they're being created all over the world there's a network that's increasing in South Africa a lot as well which is great um and then in the polar regions as well there's a lot of work going on there to protect things um and that's all really important for humans to be able to benefit from it, but also for the ocean to maintain its kind of balance, its ecosystem balance, because um, overfishing and removal of different species um, can create cascade effects through the marine ecosystem. 
um, which then has a knock-on effect on uh, commercial fisheries and um, fish stocks, which are really important. Like one billion people in the world re rely on fish as a protein source, so you can end up with like a huge portion of the world starving to death um, if the ocean isn't protected. Yeah, so these like MPAs are really beneficial for both humans and animals, and like you guys are in a great spot where it's a hot spot for all those different species. But people don't realize that like by protecting the animals, we're also protecting ourselves and our source of food income. So it's really important to have these areas. Yeah, there's also like the economic side as well, depending on the marine protected area type that you're talking about. The type that we oh, have yeah. here is like um, would still allow recreational activities. So you'd still have diving and things like that. And MPAs can also provide like a, a reason kind of for, for tourists to go and visit that specific area. Um, which can bring in a lot of revenue for the community, which is a sustainable source of revenue and provides an alternate source of income to unsustainable fishing. So there's also kind of like this upward positive spiral that can happen through the creation of an MPA. Yeah, absolutely. That's It's such an important thing to think about. And a lot of people like don't think about the economical benefits, I don't think, because they just think like, there's always very like one-sided thinking when you come when it comes to MPAs about like, oh, this means I can't do this anymore. This means that like we're not going to be allowed to fish. And there is a lot of different types of MPAs, as you said, and it's really important to understand those. And I'm really glad that you guys are doing this work to educate people on that. Yeah, I do think that it's really important to um, like some conservation strategies around the world don't consider humans as much but in terms of like realistic long-term um, implementation of successful conservation strategies you have to involve humans humans are the cause of the problem so they have to be involved in the solutions um, and if you create a marine protected area that doesn't benefit humans in any way shape or form and actually is to the detriment of the local community, you create entirely other social problems, um, which ultimately will result. So say if we created an MPA that was like a completely no take zone and kind of screwed over the local community here, you'd end up with a desperate situation, poverty setting in even more so than it currently is. You'd have socioeconomic problems and ultimately people would start illegally fishing um, more and more. And then you've still got the environmental problem, even though you've tried to solve it. So you have to involve humans to be able to create a successful long-term strategy. Oh, absolutely. There was, uh, in a couple of previous podcasts, we had talked about how important it is to take into account the local community that you're around because they're the ones that know the area. They're the ones that use the area every day. And so they're going to be the ones most affected by anything or have like the insight to things that you may not realize. So it's really important to utilize those communities. Yeah, exactly. You can you can also use that as well in the science, like through surveys and the people that live there have the most knowledge of the area. Um, so you can have as many degrees as you want, but it's going to be the local community that have the best knowledge of that area. So working with the local community is really important to any successful conservation strategy um, and sharing knowledge and having like a, a, a really good relationship that's open and you can talk about all kinds of stuff. And that's kind of what we rely on. Oh, absolutely. I think the use of citizen science is absolutely so important because 
like you said, you could have as many degrees as you want. Like, let's, in this context, let's say it's birds that you're looking at. You could know almost everything about birds and go to a different community and they could be like, no, we don't have this bird here, even though it says we do. Like, we've been watching these, we've been bird watching for our entire lives. We've never seen this bird. And like, you might expect to see that bird there, but something might have changed where they're not. So like citizen science can help give more insight into that. Yeah, definitely. I think just sharing knowledge is such an important part of progression. Oh, 110%. And to share knowledge with people who haven't had the chance yet to be exposed to like the STEM fields is so incredibly important because you might inspire someone to pursue it or you might just like teach them something they didn't know that helps explain things a little better. Yeah, exactly. Is there anywheres that people can support you guys or help out in any way with any of this? Yeah, definitely. Um, so our website's got loads of information on if people want to um, look up more. And that's just lovetheoceans.org. Um, and then we've also got social media platforms. So like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all of that kind of stuff, which people can look up um, and uh, get involved online. Um, then we also have people out in Mozambique that come out to help us. So if you want to get experience and, and um, help out physically, then you can um, come out to Mozambique. Um, but yeah, so there's a multitude of ways. I also do um, around the UK, I do a lot of talks at universities and schools. So if people want me to come and talk at their university or school, they can um, email us and organize that as well. Do you guys have any opportunities for like volunteers or like if people wanted to come out, how did they go about doing that? Yeah, so um, we have an online application process for our volunteer spots um, and we recruit our staff from our volunteers too. So there's actually a career path there as well um, if people are interested in kind of working in the space as well as just getting experience. Um, and we work with, uh, we well, we work with so many different types of people. It's actually really amazing because um, we just have so many different nationalities um, coming to our base camp. But basically we have our kind of um, data creation program is with our university students. So um, people who are studying related subjects at university come out um, and help out and that information's on our website. Uh, and then we have our kind of public program, um, which is anyone from any walk of life can come on that. So that's, we've had bakers, we've had astrophysicists, we've had actors, um, like any anyone can come on that program. <laughs> Um, and get experience and help out with the work that we do and, and get the training in it as well. Um, and then we also do like bespoke groups. So um, I call them our specialist programs, but essentially it's groups of people that want to come out. So that can be a dive school. We have photographers that come out and do workshops with us. Um, we have some teachers that come out and help with the swimming stuff that we do. Um, so if there's like a basically a, a particular area of the work that we do that really, really speaks to you and you have a group of people that want to get involved maybe just in that area or through a few different areas um, then we can also do that too um, but all of that information is on our website and we have an online application process so you can just submit the form on the website and then it's me on the other side of the emails so um, <laughs> then it will be yeah t chatting to me and putting a plan in place that's awesome. That's so exciting. I think it's amazing that you guys have this like open opportunity to anyone because I know that like volunteering at stuff like this is how I really got my start in marine bio and it just is what made me really fall in love with it is this like citizen science kind of stuff and educational programs. So I think it's absolutely so important. 
Yeah, I agree. Getting that experience for us, we've seen, especially um, with, well, actually it's a mix. We've had some people on our like public program have come through because they're looking at going into marine biology. And actually I had such a nice email the other day. We had a mature student join us, or actually not a mature student, just um, a slightly older lady join us on a program, I think two years ago. And I got an email the other day um, and she's gone back to university as a mature student. Um, and she's now doing a foundation year in marine biology as a result of her time with us because she felt so passionately about what we're doing. Um, and it's so nice when you get messages like that um, because like, it just reminds you that you are having an impact on someone's life. And like, whilst they're doing so much good while they're here, it's also nice to hear that they've kind of taken that away with them and, and are changing the way that they live back wherever their home country is. Oh, yeah. And like taking the education and the exposure that you've given them and using that to hopefully do something good where they are, which is awesome. I love that. Yeah, exactly. We had um, a really lovely American join us last year and she, oh no, Canadian, she killed me for saying that, sorry. Um, and um, uh, she's a fourth grade teacher and she went back to her elementary school and I got a WhatsApp um, the other day of her kids um doing some plastic work that she's implemented with them as a result of her time with us and and that was really cute seeing her kind of passing on um her knowledge that she gained while she was here and the passion that she that she found when she was here um, and passing that on to the next generation of kids that is so exciting and so cute I would imagine I love yeah, that very adorable <laughs> Well, perfect. Make sure to follow along with the Love the Oceans and keep up with all the awesome work that they're doing. And Francesca, thank you again so much for joining me today and teaching me all about MPAs. Thanks for having me. Another big thank you to Francesca for joining me on the Water Woman podcast today. Make sure you check out all the social media for Love the Oceans. It'll be listed in the description of the podcast, as well as shared on all the social media from the Water Woman podcast. You can find the Water Woman podcast on all social medias. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the Water Woman podcast and on Twitter at the Water Woman pod. If you or someone you know is a Water Woman who is interested in being on the podcast, please reach out to us either on our website, waterwomenpodcast.weebly.com or through email at waterwomanpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and hopefully have you on the podcast. Until next time, stay salty. (laughs) 